If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin reading shortly in verse 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, again, find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Matthew chapter 5 in the passage that we'll be reading on page 760 of that Bible. This past spring, my parents' basement flooded. It wasn't like an ankle-deep flood or anything like that, but enough to soak through carpet and wood and furniture and enough to basically annoy them. And of many bad things that happened from that, there was one semi-good thing that happened. It forced them to go through boxes of stuff that they had down there that they hadn't gone through in a long time. And so one day this spring, my kids came home with a box basically of my old stuff. And in there were various report cards. I'm pretty sure a a book that I put together in second grade of what I'm thinking are plagiarized Garfield cartoons. I don't know exactly why I made that, but I think I got a good grade on that. Um, The drawings weren't great, but the humor was there. And uh, so one of the things that they found most interesting about this were my old report cards. My kids found them fascinating because, to be frank, I was not a very good student. It's not that my grades were horrible, it's just they weren't great. And on top of that, I had a lot of comments from teachers which indicated that I was not the kind of student that I was holding them up to be. My English teachers said I was a consistent problem in class. You'd think that they would have a better sense of humor being in English, but apparently they didn't. I had a math teacher who reported that I wasn't living up to my potential, which was probably true. Eventually, by the time that high school started and after middle school, I decided at some point that I had to get my stuff in gear. Otherwise, the rest of my life was going to be affected by this. And so I started working on my grades. My grades improved mightily. And I kept that up all the way through college, where my grades weren't top-notch, but they were all right, good as a fact. But even in that, I had problems. I realized that I needed the grades, and I was able to produce them. But truth be told, that's all I was doing. I wasn't really learning because I didn't want to learn. My goal in school wasn't to learn. My goal in school was to get passing grades or even to get good grades because good grades got you a good job. Good grades got you into a good school. I was getting an education, but I wasn't gaining knowledge. And I was getting a degree, but I was doing the bare minimum to get it. When Jesus tells us that we are to strive for what we'll call a greater righteousness in Matthew 5.20, he is saying something of the same thing to us. We're not just to strive to barely make it. We're not to simply try to get the grades and hope that because we've gotten those grades, we are clear before God. But we are to strive for that which is better. Not simply getting by, but setting goals higher, pursuing real change in our lives. To be honest, we go back to that verse, using the Pharisees and the scribes was not so much a blistering assault on them, but they were just really good examples of people who seemed to have their lives together, of people who seemed to be following God. They played the part. They did the right deeds. They passed the tests, if you will, but they never learned wisdom, never sought more. And because of that, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus wants more out of his disciples than that. Not as a requirement to enter the kingdom of heaven, but as the very nature of the people who are in the kingdom of heaven, We are to be people who strive for more, who seek, as we've said, a greater righteousness. Jesus has laid that groundwork, and now as we turn further in Matthew, he's going to provide through the rest of Matthew chapter 5, six examples of what this greater righteousness looks like. In each, he will follow a pretty set pattern. He will start with a a basic, well-established understanding, sometimes quoting from the Bible, sometimes just from the general milieu of the, the day, and then he will give his own sort of 
unique, higher righteousness take on that. Those others are sort of the bare minimum that, that you could possibly do. And Jesus says we need to do better than that. There's something more to press toward. He will give us those goals, and then typically he will give us practical steps that we take to achieve that. These six examples are quite clearly, I think, broken up into three group, or to two groups of three. We'll handle the first group of three today. It seems as though these two groups are broken up into kind of the relationships that are exhibited by them. The first group of three deals with what we might think of as an inner circle of people, those who you are closest to, brothers and sisters, wives and husbands. The second bit is the outer circle, acquaintances, people that you would have dealings with every day, and sometimes business partners, and then even enemies. Today, as I said, we're going to handle the first three and see the greater righteousness that we are to have with those who are closest to us. Let us listen and obey the words of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, as he says, beginning in Matthew, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This, too, is the word of our God. As we take each of these in time, the first thing I would put before you is that you need to reconcile with siblings. You need to reconcile with siblings. Jesus begins by quoting the fifth commandment, of which you are very familiar, that you are not to commit murder, This commandment is wider than just premeditated murder. It kind of refers to the protection of all life, that even accidental deaths, that you are from your own negligence is kind of part of this. But the the bare minimum of this is do not commit murder. Don't unwantingly take someone's life. Jesus adds then that there is judgment coming for anyone who does this. It should be said from the start that in all of these examples that we are given, Jesus isn't actually contradicting the thing that comes before it. And so he's not saying, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder, but I'm telling you, go ahead, which would be the contradiction. He's not contradicting it. And so the word but probably isn't the right word to use. You might want to, perhaps if you you want to use the word but, you might want to say, but now I'm telling you, he's furthering or deepening that commandment. 
his corrected understanding is pretty obvious. Protracted anger, lasting resentment is also wrong and it needs to be dealt with. We sometimes read this as though Jesus has in mind just anger, but even in the examples that he gives and the way that he talks about this, it doesn't seem like it's just a spur-of-the-moment anger that pops up in people, which is normal in humans. It could be righteous and it could be unrighteous. Jesus isn't really talking about that. What it seems to mean is this sort of anger that is undealt with, an anger that arises that you do not quell, an anger that rises that you let burn in you and smolder within you. It's not just the verbal form that gives rise to this, but again, the examples that he uses. To say what Jesus is getting at here is to say it's not just murder, but he says everyone who is angry with his brother, kind of continually angry with him, not taking it away, will be liable to judgment. It's this anger that, again, persists that you don't do anything with, but you let it fester and foster it within you. He then gives two illustrations of what this looks like. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That insult is, is the word raka, as many of you have further down in your footnotes. That word is meant to be sort of a, an, an insult that's portrayed directly at the person. It could be aimed at their intelligence. It could be aimed at their inabilities or their insecurities, but it is quite honestly a personal attack. The second example that he gives is of the word more, you fool, which is related to our word moron, but isn't an attack on their intelligence as much as it is their morality. It's not pointed at them, but at what they do. You are unfit for the kingdom of God. You are a fool. They are by natural extension of being a fool, morally incompetent, and therefore they are outside of the kingdom. Each of these statements is meant to demean the other person, to reduce them from a person made in the image of God to something that is only worth of condemnation and ridicule, and what's more, it's to place yourself above them. It makes sense that Jesus would turn first to speech. Speech is the venting of anger. It is the release of anger. Before you get to murder, you speak. The judgments that are listed in each of these are meant to imply the same thing. Whether it's the judgment, the counsel, the fire of hell, all implies that in insisting on holding on to such anger, making sure that it doesn't move away, clinging onto it and letting it smolder inside of you will just allow the spark of your anger long enough to where it blazes and engulfs you in flame. You are liable to judgment because of your anger. The point is simply this. It's not simply the fact that somebody did something to you that caused you to be angry, but that you decided to hold on to that anger. At one point along the textual tradition of this, somebody put in that you become angry without cause. But of course, it's a foolish thing to put in there because every bit of our anger always has a justification. We always think that we're justified in it. Jesus isn't talking just about that momentary bit of anger, but holding on to it. One's reminded of Jonah. It had that plant grow up, provided him shade as he watched God being kind and merciful to Nineveh, and a worm came and ate the plant, and Jonah was furious. And God's question wasn't, Jonah, do you have a reason to be mad? Of course Jonah had a reason to be mad. But God's question was better than that. He said, do you do well 
to be angry. Is this anger good for you? Jesus answers for him better than he does. No, that anger is not good for you. As Paul says in Ephesians, you might be angry, and you can be angry, but do not sin, and don't let the sun go down on your anger. What then should we do? Well, we should reconcile. The purpose of Jesus' practical remedy is both to show the importance and the quickness of our reconciliation. First, he gives this example of going into worship. You're going to offer a gift at the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, not that you have something against your brother. But even if your brother has something against you, you will go and you will reconcile first. It's a beautiful example because people in his day and, and his followers themselves should think of worship as the central priority of our lives, distilled down from everyday life where we should be worshiping God in everything we do to this moment where we gather together on a morning to praise and worship God. And Jesus says, if you go into that service and you recall that you have something against your brother or your brother or sister has something against you, stop what you're doing and go and reconcile with them. Worship does not take priority over that. How exactly could you even think that you could worship God while there is disunity between you and a brother or sister? How can we worship God with that over our heads? How can we give our allegiance to God when we are fostering anger for someone that he himself has died to save and that he has forgiven? Is their offense against us somehow greater than the one against God? If he and God or she and God have been reconciled, why should you not be? Jesus tells us to go and to reconcile, to make things right, to resume the place that you were before whatever event happened, happened. He's not promising that it's going to happen, but he's, he's telling you to make every good faith effort to make that occur. And secondly, he gives practical advice to get it over with quickly. Now we can hear that there's an accuser and they're going to accuse you, they're going to go to the judge and we can try and figure out who the judge is supposed to be, who the jailer is supposed to be, who the accuser is supposed to be, and, and go through this to, to find out what Jesus is talking about. And certainly of all people here, I am not one who should tell you that you aren't to look into the details of a text. But I think that there's a general understanding here that is this. Our anger and our frustration with somebody else always snowballs into others. It's never kept just between us. We tell a spouse, we tell a friend, we speak of our anger, we talk to that person. That person knows that you're angry with them, so they talk to other people, and pretty soon the whole thing is snowballing and you can't get out of it. Jesus is telling you, settle quickly so that things don't get out of hand, so that worse does not occur. Do you have anger? Whether or not that anger is justified, do you have anger? Do you deal with that? The question here is limited and narrower than just whether your anger is justified, but it's when you're mad, when you're not angry at an institution or some sort of generalized situation, but specifically with a brother or a sister, what do you do? Do you let it burn and boil within you, ever growing until you pop? Jesus is imploring you, get rid of it. Don't think that time is going to deal with it. Get rid of it. Reconcile. 
Love your brother or sister enough to go and reunify yourself to them. Love them enough to seek them out. Reconcile with your siblings. The second example that Jesus gives to us is that we should recoil from sin. Secondly, we should recoil from sin. Leaving the commandment of murder, Jesus goes to the very next commandment in the ten, to committing adultery. You shall not commit adultery. This commandment was meant to protect fidelity in marriage and the commandment to bring honor to God's design and, as we will see here in a couple of moments, protection for women and children. But Jesus has a greater righteousness than that. As though you think that the way in which you handle your life so long as you do not commit adultery is okay, he says, rather, you cannot lust either. Some explanation about what is being said here is helpful. I think that that idea of lustful intent is good. I I think that we can make it a little bit more clear than that and say that what he means to say is something like that you look at a woman with lustful intent, or better yet, that you look at a woman in order to lust. The whole purpose of you seeing her, the purpose of you looking again at her is to lust for her. You should always ask why you are looking. What is it that you're looking for? What is the purpose of you looking? Is it to lust, to picture and objectify a woman, to sensualize her, to imagine her in ways that are not yours to imagine? In that, Jesus says, you have sinned. It's worth noting on both the question of anger and murder and of lust and adultery, Jesus is not making them equal. He's not saying that lusting is the same as committing adultery, but what he is saying is if you abhor murder, you also ought to abhor anger. And if you abhor committing adultery, you also ought to abhor lust. The world that we live in certainly rejects this kind of thinking. We know how much people love to be angry, how they love to be made angry, and how they wallow in their anger. Cable news basically makes their living off of anger as do many newspapers and columnists. But no matter how much our world pumps our fuel for anger, that is nothing compared to how it pumps our fuel for lust. Our culture lusts for lust. And it's held up, not just by the surface of our culture, the marketing of women's clothing and perfume, what we see in movies and TV, but in the seedy and more whispered parts of our society and pornography and the like. Not just in the massive amount of money that pornographers make, but also the mainstreaming of it. I was reminded in our community group a couple weeks ago of the words of Dennis Prager, who is a conservative, very conservative gentleman, but nevertheless, in an interview with somebody, the topic of pornography came up, and this very conservative gentleman, who is well-known in conservative circles, offered this advice. If pornography is a substitute for one's wife, it's awful. If it's a substitute for adultery, it's not awful. And Jesus says, no, that's wrong. Adultery is awful. But we shouldn't think that somehow lusting after other people in any context can be okay. And Jesus is making it very clear that it's not okay. Now, I would like to say 
something at this point in time, while it's clear that Jesus here is referring directly to men, after all, he doesn't say when you look at another person. It's not like the word brother that we hit earlier, which kind of encompasses brothers and sisters. This word can only mean women. He's quite clearly talking directly to men. I think that I would like to make a separate case, but along the same lines to women today. When we in church often talk about women's modesty. Many people in the church have made the mistake of talking about modesty that women are to have mostly for the sake of men. That your brothers in the Lord have issues with lust and therefore you yourselves ought to be modest in how you dress so that you're not dragging them into that. Whether or not there's something to that is beside the point here. But I think modesty in women even amongst the people of the Lord, will hardly affect the lust that men are going to have outside of this. There are too many places where we can pick up on on inappropriately dressed women to think that we're just going to cap that off here. Men are responsible for their own lusts. Men are responsible for their own desires. But I would call on women to dress modestly, not for the sake of men in here, but for their own sake. Just as Jesus implied here, the danger is not just in adultery, but it's looking in order to lust. The whole point of men looking at a woman is to lust. Women, I would put before you, what is the purpose of how you dress? Do you dress in order to incite lust in men? Do you dress with the purpose of arousing sexual interest in people who are not your husband? I think the same sort of commandment would come to us today. And obviously, there are blurred lines. It it is difficult to decipher when you move from appreciating the beauty of somebody into lust. And I'm sure that a desire to look nice is, is quite easy to topple over into an attempt to draw men's sexual attention. But the question is your purpose in dressing, and the question is the purpose in looking. Do we do this to arouse the sexual interest of others, or to draw, or to think, and to kind of settle down into the sexual interests of others? What practical steps should we take then? If lust is right out, how do we, how do we handle lust? How do, how do we handle these things? It's not, it's not quite as easy as going and reconciling with somebody. That's a very easy step to take. We know that there are physical things that we can do. We leave our gift and we go. Jesus points us in a very interesting direction. I would like to think that I've got a pretty wide taste in art and music and movies. I I like just about every genre of it. Um, Not every instance of it, but I've got a pretty wide taste. There is one type of movie that I've just never gotten into, and that's horror movies. I just, it's not that I'm squeamish or that I'm more terrified of these things than, than other people. I just, I just don't get it. I don't understand the point of it. I don't, I don't have, there's no, there's no interest in me in stuff like that. However, I think they're of interest here. One of the things that they do to horrify people outside of building up a tension that's relieved in not a good way but in a bad way and and doing something like jump cuts is that they try to make the human body horrific. They show it bent and out of shape. They show it mutilated and and in, in bad positions that we know are unnatural. It's meant to be grotesque. And that grotesqueness draws people in. It's not a new phenomenon. 
This is where freak shows came from in the past. Come and see a human being who doesn't look like a human being ought to look like. These wrecked and disfigured bodies, it's meant to be revolting and horrifying and gross. And to be honest, I don't think that Jesus is far off from that here. We hear these words, but we know that Jesus has said these. We've probably heard them before. He will say them again. We don't think much of them, but we ought to. Listen to how he says this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Tear it. Imagine doing that. The gaping hole in your skull where your eye used to be. The grotesqueness of holding it in your hand or even of, of doing that kind of thing. It's not pleasant to think about. It is, for those of you who are squeamish, kind of horrific to think about. And that is the point. The point is, as revolting as the image of taking a hacksaw to your wrist or using your finger to pluck out your eye, your sin should be more revolting to you than that. That it's better, if you were given the choice between plucking out your eye and committing a sin, you would say, please, let me have the, the, the courage and the strength to pluck out my eye. Because one of those things horrifies me more than the other. The purpose is not to make us keep these things literally, but it's rather different. To show us the attitude that we are to have about our sin. The allure of sin must always be met with the reality of hell. And the reality of hell ought to be so disastrous to us that we would do anything in our power to avoid it. And the sooner we understand this, the better we will be. So do what you need to do to avoid lust. Gentlemen, if you've had your mind formed and fashioned by the world so that you are easily pulled into lust, then be quite modest, my brother, with what you watch on television. Make sure that you make firm eye contact with women. Carefully scour your social media or cut that hand off and just don't follow it. It is better to be thought of as old-fashioned, as prudish, silly, or weak than to be hip and licentious and strong in hell. Are you tempted, sisters, to have others think of you in a sexy way and to dress appropriately for that end? I tell you it's better to be thought of as frumpy and out of style than to be fashionable and sexy in hell. Each of these can be taken to the extremes, obviously, you can pluck out an eye. And women, you could just wear big flannel sacks. None of that's quite necessary, though. The point is this. Your sin ought to make you recoil. An offense before God ought to make you go to extreme measures to get rid of it. That is what Jesus is holding out for you. Do not lust, but recoil from your sin. Third, we should respond with suffering. We should respond with suffering. Jesus here seems to be alluding, if not directly quoting, from Deuteronomy 24, which in the ASV reads that when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because, she, because he has found some indecency in, in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce. Now, the Jewish people, a lot of Jewish scholars, not all of them, 
I, I want to make it very clear, not all of them, but many of them place a lot of emphasis on the word some there, some indecency, which they then took to mean any indecency. So examples abound in Second Temple Jewish literature of people finding some indecency, including thinking her not quite as pretty as she used to be, thinking that they have found a prettier wife, or even to the fact that you don't like how she keeps the house. These are some indecencies which you are liable to be able to divorce your wife for and to go out and find another wife, presumably one who is a better housekeeper and who is prettier. Jesus, however, has other thoughts. I will say that this is a limited passage on divorce. We're going to cover this much more fully in Matthew chapter 19. So I I know that there are many things to say, and I'm going to say many things that will not be fully explained here, but we will get to them in Matthew 19, and you can always ask me about these later. Safe to say, though, that Jesus does have incredibly harsh words for some folks. He admonishes anyone who would send away their wife and consider the consequences for her. Not only, but also even for himself. The heart of the matter is Jesus saying, you make her commit adultery. You make her, you force her to commit adultery. I think that those are incredibly strong words. Two questions spring from this. First, why do you force her to commit adultery? Why is it adultery? Traditionally, we have a way of putting marriage vows that end with five important words, till death do us part. Some where along the lines, we've started to drop those from a number of wedding ceremonies, but they are important. They're important not because so much it is a commitment from a man to his soon-to-be wife and from a woman to her soon-to-be husband, although they should at least be that. But more than that, it's a recognition of what they are doing outside of their intent at all. They're saying that we are now bound together until death. I think Jesus is saying quite clearly that remarriage is nothing short of adultery. Now, briefly having said that, although, again, we will get to things further in Matthew 19, I would say this, if you are in that situation. Sin is ubiquitous in our world. I dare say that we have just laid almost every man in here liable of sin when we talk about lust and every other person in here liable to sin when we talk about holding grudges and keeping resentment in your heart. So, if this is a sin that you've committed, I beg of you to know that there is forgiveness in the Lord and that that new commitment, if you have remarried, is just as steadfast and sure as the old one. And although that is somewhat off topic, it is related enough to deal with it. But nevertheless, Jesus says that you have forced her to commit adultery. Like, if she leaves you while you are still living, if she combines herself and remarries somebody else, that is an illegal operation. Before God, should not be. This is where the exception clause come in, where he says, except on the ground of sexual immorality. I don't think that that's referring to the divorce. I think rather that is referring to the fact that she's committing adultery. In that case, if she's already been unfaithful, what Jesus is saying is, you are not making her commit adultery because she's already committed adultery. Which leads to the second question. Why does it force her to commit adultery? If that is indeed adultery, why does it force her to do that? It's a simple answer. Women had absolutely no social or economic or financial protection outside of marriage. Marriage was that protection. 
If you turned your wife out because she didn't meet your homemaking needs, where in the world was she to turn? People knew this. They would have understood what Jesus is saying. If that is indeed adultery, then you are indeed forcing her into it. There are certain other things to consider when we speak about marriage and divorce, and we can't handle all of it. But I think that what we have before us is a point which we can sort of extrapolate into a number of other things. The main point of what Jesus is saying, I think, is something that I'm going to quote Jurassic Park from, Dr. Ian Malcolm, when he says that when it comes to dinosaurs, the scientists were so preoccupied with thinking whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think whether they should. Jesus is saying the same things, only unfortunately not about dinosaurs. He's saying that simply because something is in a sense legitimate does not mean that it reaches the highest standards of God. Just because you can't find a reason why in the Bible you shouldn't do something doesn't mean you should do it. It doesn't mean that it's profitable to do it. It doesn't mean that it's good to do it. It doesn't mean that it's right to do it. Let us skip over for just a second the trivial reasons why someone might send a wife away and assume that a husband has real significant reasons for doing so. Unlike the woman that we read about earlier today in Proverbs 31, she's actually a Proverbs 21 wife. 21.9. Proverbs reads, It is better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Or perhaps 27.15, The continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. This man has a wife who is cutting with her words, demanding, nagging, unkind, unloving, runs him down continuously. Jesus is saying to that man that you are to love her who is unloving. You are to be kind to her. And if not just for her sake, then for yours. Because you sending her away are forcing her into sin. In other words, what he is doing is looking at that man and saying, even if that is the case, you are to suffer for her. To give a somewhat different example, let's say you start a business with a brother or sister in the Lord. Life moves in different directions, and for a variety of reasons, you decide that that business isn't in your best interests anymore, and you want to pull out of it. But you and they cannot come to an agreement on what that financial separation is to look like, and it's causing problems, and those problems begin to build and build, and over time, it becomes problematic to the point of wrecking the friendship. And you think, well, I need to get my money out. How am I going to do this? And you can go to the church, and you can ask them for help, but the church obviously has no sort of jurisdiction over the finances of another member. And so you think, well, hey, here's what I can do. I can take my brother or sister to court. Legal precedent be set. And I know that the courts are there for this kind of thing. And, and I, I looked in the Bible and I couldn't find a place that said that I couldn't do that. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, writes this. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? 
Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Sounds a lot like what Jesus was just saying about the, those who don't have a greater righteousness, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why not suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? Paul's not saying there's never a legitimate reason to go to court, but he's asking a better question. In your case, is it not better to be defrauded and to suffer? The disunity and distrust signaled by such a thing, the shame brought on the name of Christ, is certainly worth avoiding more than just money. Friends, the greater righteousness means that we often have to respond with suffering. We are not simply allowed to do that which is legitimate, but we are always to ask what is best. There are many times in our lives when the best for others, for spouses, for brothers and sisters in the Lord, even what is best for our enemies will be that we suffer for them. Don't be afraid of doing so. Respond with suffering. Now, I dare say that each of these three examples, and at least somewhere, you have found yourself wanting in some way. Whether by hanging on to grudges and letting anger fester in you, whether through lustful looks and desires, or simply thinking of your own needs over others. And you may wonder where this places you in God's kingdom. And again, I would tell you that these are not entrance requirements. But the same Jesus who places these things before you, who says that these ought to be the goals of your life, these ought to be the way in which you walk forward in life, is the same Jesus that has called you into that journey, who has given you grace to come alongside of him and gives you power to do the very thing. So if you have failed, if you have clung to anger and frustration, if you find yourselves looking in order to lust, if you find that you are only seeking your interests and are unwilling to suffer for the good of other people, know that there is forgiveness and aid in Jesus Christ. For he has come, not just to give a new law, not just to give us more difficult things. It's not like the law was bad, but wait until Jesus gets a hold of you. But rather, he has come to give us grace and mercy. And he does so precisely by the very things that he has called us to do. Jesus suffers for his bride. One who is unfaithful to him in many ways. He lays down his life for us. Even as he looks at us with purity and love, not clinging to the anger that he must feel even though we have offended him time and time again, but instead he gives grace. And he has died for us, laying down his life so that these sins and all other sins might be covered, removed, and the sin canceled. Friends, you can trust Jesus for all of this. And therefore, you can seek a greater righteousness without fear of failing. You don't have to fear failing, because I guarantee you you're going to fail, but you don't need to fear it, because the perfect love of Jesus should cast out that fear. Trust him, lean on him, and strive to honor God in all of your life. Let us pray. Jesus, give us grace to walk like you in this world. Help us to put away our sin, which clings so tightly to us, that we may run the race set before us in freedom. Give us wisdom to know the best paths and strength to help one another run down them.
We ask these things for our good and for your glory. Amen.